I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2017. Enjoy. My guest for this portion of WGTD's morning show is Dr. David Geyer, who is a highly regarded orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist uh, who not only helps young athletes to recover from their injuries, but also helps the rest of us understand uh, the nature of such injuries, uh, the ways in which uh, such serious injuries perhaps can be avoided or the risk at least can be lessened uh, and uh, and helps us understand the the reality of of what an an athlete, especially an an elite athlete, is facing uh, in trying to come back from what are, are often devastating injuries and injuries that once upon a time would have meant the end of their career. But uh, now with the wonders of modern medicine, uh, it is possible for many athletes uh, to return to the field, uh, to the court, uh, and and in some cases even return to achieve uh, every bit the uh, excellence that they had achieved even before their injury. Uh, Dr. Geyer's uh, new book is called That's Gotta Hurt, The Injuries That Changed Sports Forever, uh, in which he examines uh, a number of specific athletes and specific injuries which they suffered, which really helped sort of change the game in in the sense of helping us understand uh, the nature of of certain uh, injuries and and what it means to uh, uh, come back from such injuries. from such devastating injuries. And uh, uh, it's a very, very interesting book published by Four Edge. Dr. David Geyer, we welcome you to the morning show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. I'm curious uh, if you came into the field of sports medicine uh, as an athlete yourself, and if that's one reason why all of this is uh, so interesting to you, or were you simply drawn to medicine and then for no particular reason, uh, drawn to the arena of, of sports medicine specifically? Well, I was an athlete. I, I wouldn't call myself a terrific athlete. I didn't play, obviously, in the pros or, or even at the college level. Uh, I did play travel soccer and a variety of other sports uh, and still like to be active now, lift weights every day and do a variety of other things. So uh, in a lot of ways, I still consider myself an athlete. I just don't get paid to do it. Hmm. Uh, you begin your really interesting book uh, with uh, an event that occurred back on 19, in 1970. And as we first begin reading it, we have no idea the particular person you are talking about or the particular incident. And the longer we read it, the more it starts to become clear uh, which moment in sports you, you are talking about. And it's not an elite athlete in the sense of anybody that uh, that any of us have heard of, and yet it's somebody that just about all of us have seen. Explain to our listeners how your book begins and why you chose to begin it this way. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, it's a name, you're right, nobody knows, a guy named Vinko Bogataj, and I probably I may be mispronouncing that. He was a, a Slovenian uh, uh, ski, uh, I think they... Uh, now it's basically, they call it ski flying back then, uh, but it's what we think of with the, the downhill skiing, the ramps, the ski jumping. And he was the legendary crash on the wide world of sports. And, you know, the agony of defeat guy, his crash follows those 
words. And I chose him because Wide World of Sports sort of paralleled uh, the explosion in sports in terms of the prominence in society with 24-7 cable uh, sports coverage and talk uh, radio and the Internet. Uh, but it also was a moment that had a tremendous impact on the sport. You don't think much of that one ski jumper basically having a crash and you don't you you don't you think it's interesting and you you hate it for him but we never really heard what happened to him he really did not suffer that significant of an injury he had a concussion but he was fine but it had a devastating impact on the sport of ski jumping basically that footage being shown week after week convinced parents that the sport was really uh, unsafe and basically it really went away largely in the United States there were other factors but that's what I wanted to show in this book how one injury could have a tremendous impact both positive and negative on the sports and on the athletes right in this case perhaps dissuading certain people from from pursuing a sport that uh, that looked very very dangerous uh, if 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 all you know about this sport is is this infamous uh, bit of, of of film footage, uh, and of course in other cases, uh, your book explores ways in which a, a particularly devastating injury uh, helped maybe change the way the rules were were written for a sport or the way in which equipment was designed uh, to uh, to safeguard the well being of the of, of the of the athletes, and in some cases we are talking about uh, sports injuries that perhaps helped to prompt or helped uh, bring in fo- into focus uh, new ways of, of treating such a devastating injury. Uh, that's uh, part of the way uh, in which we uh, learn about uh, one of the greatest female runners of all time, the great uh, Joan Benoit, who won the first uh, gold medal for uh, a for women's marathon running at the Olympics. That was back in 1984. But not long before that, Joan Benoit had suffered a very, very serious knee injury. Uh, explain what made her injury so serious and what made the treatment of it, uh, in a sense, so groundbreaking. Yeah, I mean, and it's a fascinating story. She was training, as you say, for the first ever women's marathon in the Olympics, uh, training for the mar- uh, Olympic trials. She was the world record holder at the time and was easily going to win that uh, and started developing this pain in her knee that was not getting better. She was seeing doctors all over the country, getting all these treatments, getting shots in her knee, and nothing was working. And so uh, she saw a doctor that was affiliated with Nike who sponsored Benoit, and he said, hey, we've got one last thing to try. Let's scope your knee. Let's you know, do an arthroscopic knee surgery, which was fairly novel at the time. It seems so commonplace now, but basically he was able to look in through small incisions with a, with a camera, find the source of the pain and take care of it. And she was able to compete 17 days later after that surgery and win the marathon trials, which even today would be unheard of uh, to be able to compete at that level 17 days after arthroscopic knee surgery. But that raised so much attention. It really put arthroscopic surgery on the map. Um, and you know, now it's the most common, one of the most common surgeries in all of medicine. Hmm. You also go on from there to tell the story of uh, uh, a legendary basketball player by the name of Bernard King and his return after a devastating ACL injury. And, uh, and, and essentially what you, what you say in this chapter is that not 
not long before that, uh, this kind of injury would have really spelled the end of such an athlete's career. Or at the very best, they might have you know, limped back and, and, and hobbled around playing maybe at a th- third of the level that they played before. And so Bernard King's comeback uh, was quite extraordinary. Uh, explain how such a comeback was possible. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And before Bernard King's time, doctors, we would put uh, patients in casts and let their knee become stable, but it would get really stiff. And you just can't play sports uh, at a high level with a stiff knee. And so it ended their careers. Bernard King was determined to not have that happen. So he underwent a surgery um, that has become very common, but then a grueling rehab over a couple of years getting his motion back, getting his strength back. And he got back to play at an all-star level. He made the all-star game. He was the first elite athlete to be able to do that. Um, and it really set the way now for, you know, basically all athletes expect to be able to get back to play at the same level. And it's not just pro athletes, even though we have good success rates at that level, but it's high school kids, college kids, even younger than that, and then adults that just like to play sports and exercise. Now 100 to 150,000 Americans get that surgery every year, and because of the changes, the advances we've made, we can expect that they're going to get back to do what they love to do. We're speaking with Dr. David Geyer about his book, That's Gotta Hurt, The Injuries That Change Sports Forever. By the way, I, I wanted you to uh, share with our listeners one really beautiful moment from this chapter about Bernard King. Uh, and it, it really underscores uh, how grateful he was uh, to the doctor that it helped make his comeback possible. Uh, tell our listeners about uh, Bernard King's uh ability to return uh, and, and, and make the all-star team and, uh, and the gesture which he, he, uh, he made uh, upon that occasion. Yeah, absolutely. It's really great. So Bernard King, everybody told him that there's no chance he's ever going to get back to play, uh, but for good reason. Nobody really did before him. But, you know, he had a terrific surgeon, Dr. Norman Scott, who is the doctor of his team, the New York Knicks, and his physical therapist, Daniel Schweitzer, who he would basically – five days a week at his house. She would drive from uh, Manhattan uh, into New Jersey to work with him every single day for well over a year. And, and the three of them, they worked so hard. And to be fair, he makes the comment, really, they were the only three that thought it was possible that he could play uh, again in the NBA. So when he made the all-star team, he brought Dr. Scott, he brought uh, Daniel Schweitzer and her husband to the all-star game, gave them signed basketballs, because he was so grateful that basically it was just the three of them that believed he could do it, and sure enough, he did. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I like the way he he says something to the effect that uh, uh, there were there were three people. It was the culmination of a dream that only three people thought possible, and of course. Uh, one of those three was Dr. Norman Scott, who was there to to cheer him on. Um, your book goes on to explore the stories of of a number of different athletes and various injuries, and and for the most part, we're we're talking about you know sort of the stories of what we've just recounted with these first two, but in some cases, we're talking about uh, injuries that sort of 
give us access to more overarching questions. And I wanted to take a little bit of time to, to talk about this. Uh, in Chapter 8, where you are really exploring the notion of medical evaluation and clearance of athletes to play, and in the chapter, I think, that comes right after that about Michael Jordan, where, uh, where we're talking about the, the, the question of, of how a, an athlete can and should decide whether or not to return to play. <laughs> uh, I mean, at what point is it better for me to get out there and play again? Let's talk first about the whole matter of medical evaluation and, and clearance. I think your, your chapter here really underscores how, uh, how tricky a matter this is and really crucially important to tell us the story of this particular athlete and how it sort of raises this really intriguing issue. Yeah, so I, I start the chapter talking about Sam Bowie, who probably not a real household name unless you're a diehard NBA fan, but he was the player drafted uh, right before Michael Jordan in the 1984 uh, NBA draft, and it's widely regarded to be the worst draft pick of all time. Um, one, because Jordan became the best player ever to play, but Sam Bowie also couldn't stay healthy. He had multiple injuries. And during college, he missed two years of college because of a stress fracture in his leg. And it explores the whole question of, is that something that the team and the doctors should have been able to predict? Could he uh, have a problem that was not going to keep him from staying healthy? And Portland, the team that drafted Sam Bowie, has a history of drafting multiple players that just haven't been able to stay healthy, Bill Walton and Greg Oden and Brandon Roy. And so it explores the whole question of, you know, how do we tell? You know, if they've had an injury, how do we know they've fully recovered? Yes, we can get x-rays, and now we get MRIs, and we can, there's lots of things we can do, but we can't see pain, and we can't necessarily predict the future. There's a lot of analytics going on right now, a lot of studying of statistics, to get to where we can predict these injuries and how well uh, that's going to predict how if a you know basically an athlete can play can stay on the court stay on the field but at the end of the day with millions and millions of dollars on the line you know these if you're wrong I mean it's devastating for a franchise uh, and it's really like you say very tricky uh, to figure out despite our best tests and surgeries mm. yeah and you you really don't envy the doctor who is placed in that position. I mean, you certainly don't envy the athlete either, but you really don't envy the doctor uh, who shoulders the responsibility of, of clearing an athlete to, to play. And yes, I like in your, your, this chapter about Sambui, this, uh, this uh, sort of uh, irony that there was actually Michael Jordan who uh, suffered uh, an injury uh, quicker than, than Mr. Bowie did, and, and there were at least a few people who were saying, wow, it's a good thing we drafted Sam Bowie instead of Michael Jordan. And then, of course, Michael Jordan eventually goes on to this long and extraordinary career, and Sam Bowie just can't quite stay healthy. really underscores uh, for, for all that, that an athlete can do to remain healthy and, and be in the best shape that can possibly be, it's, it's about more than that, and it's a capricious thing, and sometimes good luck and bad luck has at least some role to play in this. Yeah, it really does, unfortunately. And that gets to sort of the bigger picture, too, and I write about this later on in the book about how does this apply to all of us, that we just love to play sports and exercise. And I think it, it stresses points like getting your injuries checked out by a doctor early and not trying to push through it 
to make sure it's not something serious. It talks about taking enough time to rehab to make sure you're 100%. And then it introduces the concepts of at what point do we, after so many injuries or so many aches and pains, do we say, hey, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. You know, these guys, you know, I talk about Bill Walton in the Sam Bowie chapter, had 37 surgeries. You know, at what point do we say, hey, you know, we got to stop and stop putting the wear and tear on our bodies. But, yeah, you're right. If the guys that can stay healthy, the adults listening to this, that you know, if they can stay healthy, you know, that's great for being able to play with your kids and being able to run in your 60s and 70s. And we're getting better in the sports medicine world at helping people do that. But you're right. A lot of it is dependent on luck and your body makeup. Right. And, of course, as we said, uh, you – you explore this question of when should an athlete return to play uh, in a chapter devoted to the great Michael Jordan, one of the great legends. The Bulls won six NBA championships. He was league MVP five times, uh, uh, NBA finals MVP six times, a 14-time All-Star. Uh, and, and, and yet he found himself, although he certainly did not have an injury-ridden career, he couldn't have done what he did. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Michael Jordan uh, faced all kinds of, of, of injuries during that long career and over and over again had to f- sort of figure out the best way for him to listen to his own body. And that was, that was really a source of concern of his, uh, during, especially early in his career, when he had the fracture in his foot that caused him to miss about half a season. He did listen to his body and said, look, I feel fine, I can play. But the doctors and the team held him out for many, many weeks after that. And it's, it's interesting because that's sort of the opposite of what we hear now. These players at the pro level feel that doctors are trying to rush them back before they're healed because the team needs them to play and the fans, you know, they make money on the fans and ticket sales. And so there's these stories about how pro athletes don't trust their doctors. So it's an interesting sort of uh, dilemma in terms of, you know, communication between the doctor and the athlete and the team and trying to figure out what's best, yes, you know, for short term, getting somebody back to play, but it doing it in a way that doesn't risk um, shortening an athlete's career and hurting their long-term health. And it's really a tricky problem uh, more than you would really think. And so I go into that in a lot of detail because we, at the end of the day, have to keep these guys healthy, not just so they can play longer and make money longer, but so they can play with their kids and be active later in life. It's also important for us to acknowledge that sometimes uh, injury uh, and, and and other uh, issues uh, can not only lead to devastation later in life, such as uh, what we've he- heard so much about with uh, uh, head injuries, perpetual head injuries that can really cause long-term brain damage, which you explore in a chapter about Dave Duerson. But also there are those rare instances in which we are even sometimes talking about an athlete's life tragically coming to an abrupt end. You talk about that in a chapter about uh, a member of the Minnesota Vikings named Corey Stringer. And, uh, and uh, some of our listeners, at least, I'm sure, remember th- this tragic story of Corey Stringer uh, dying after collapsing uh, due to heat stroke. Say a word about this and how we can safeguard against such tragedies from recur- recurring yeah, it, it was it was devastating. It was basically, and you don't think of Minnesota being somewhere that's really hot, but it was in the you know hundred close to a hundred degrees, really hot humidity in training camp, 
and the players are in you know pads and and helmets and he basically uh started overheating had you know heat went into heat stroke where he became confused and by the time the the ambulance got there and they got him to the hospital his temperature was over 108 degrees Mm. and they couldn't save him what's important about it is is that that's largely a preventable problem both from uh hydration and getting gradually used to hot and humid conditions with adding longer practices in two-a-days and adding in equipment slowly, and that's really been implemented, especially at the high school and college level, but also recognizing heat stroke and starting immediate treatment on site, not waiting for the ambulance to take them to the hospital, but do the ice water baths and things on site. And we've gotten to where we can pretty much eliminate any player dying if the right steps are taken but it still happens five to ten times a year. So while it is preventable, which is a really good thing, we still have to get the awareness out there, the education out there to keep these athletes alive. Mm. In, at the end of your book, uh, I think one of the things you touch on in your conclusion is that these breakthroughs in medical science uh, can help us keep our athletes safe and can make comebacks possible that a few years ago would have been absolutely inconceivable Sort of the double edge of it is it it makes fans of sports and athletes themselves also perhaps uh, tempted to be impatient or to have uh, outsized expectations about what is possible. We still have to be careful. We still have to listen to our own bodies. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, these concepts still apply to all of us. You know, uh, listen to our bodies, not trying to push through pain, get it checked out. But it's also leading to, are we going to follow the path of the pros who are willing to try treatments like stem cells and PRP that are sort of unproven right now uh, and not paid for by insurance? What's the role of that for us, that we just like to lift weights or run? Uh, I think that it's an exciting times in terms of what we're going to be able to do to to heal uh, active people. But there's still a lot of questions we have to answer if we're going to keep people healthy into their 60s and 70s. This is a very, very interesting book. Thirteen different athletes uh, are, are, uh, are profiled and their, their stories, uh, including uh, the Tommy John uh, surgery that is so well known in baseball. And uh, the, as, as we mentioned earlier, the, the long-term effects of brain damage for football players and, uh, and, and for other athletes for that matter, the dangers of extreme sports and so on. So much is explored in such thoughtful fashion in this book called That's Gotta Hurt, The Injuries That Change. Changed Sports Forever, published by Four Edge, and uh, the author, Dr. David Geyer. Dr. Geyer, thank you so much for making time in your busy schedule for this conversation. I enjoyed this. Best wishes. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much.